please give a warm welcome to Mr. Simon Romero. Gregory, thank you so much um, for that kind introduction. It is such an honor to be here in Taos and in northern New Mexico with all of you. And my gosh, what an amazing turnout we have today. This is fantastic. Um, I'm just going to introduce um, our panelists right now, going from um, from from uh, on my left, starting with um, with Pablo Mitchell. Uh, Pablo is a professor of history and comparative American studies at Oberlin College. He received his master's degree in history from the University of New Mexico, and is a graduate of Albuquerque Academy. He is the author of Coyote Nation. Sexual, sexuality, Race, and Conquest in Modernizing New Mexico, and West of Sex, Making Mexican America. A paperback edition of his Latino history textbook, Understanding Latino History, was released in 2017. And he is also the co-editor of Beyond the Borders of the Law, Critical Legal Histories of the North American West. <laughs> Patty Limerick is the faculty director and chair of the board of the Center of the American West at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she is also a professor of environmental studies and history. In addition, Patty was named to serve as the Colorado State Historian from 2016 to 2018 and appointed to the National Endowment for the Humanities Advisory Board called the National Council of the Humanities. Patty was nominated by President Obama in spring 2015 and was confirmed by the U.S. Senate um, in, in November of 2015. She is the author of Desert Passages, The Legacy of Conquest, Something in the Soil, and A Ditch in Time. A frequent public speaker and a columnist for the Denver Post, Patty has dedicated her career to bridging the gap between academics and the general public, to demonstrating the benefits of applying historical perspective to contemporary dilemmas and conflicts, and to making the case for humor as an essential asset of the humanities. <laughs> Durwood Ball is an associated professor of history at the University of New Mexico. He is also editor of the New Mexico Historical Review and the 93-year-old State History Journal. His areas of teaching and research are the history of the American West and the US military. He is currently writing a biography of Union Major General Edwin Vos Sumner of Fort Sumner fame, who served in the US Army from 1819 to his death in 1863 and who is one of the most reviled figures in New Mexico history. <laughs> you want to pick him. So I'd like to start off today's conversation um, just with a, uh, a reflection from a, from a couple of recent reporting trips that I've taken here in southern New Mexico and also in southern Arizona. I, I spent a lot of my time uh, in neighboring states in, in Arizona and in Texas, and I've recently been covering uh, this uh, militia that set up shop, that set up camp down in Sutherland Park, New Mexico. And one of the things I noticed um, in covering this story was the the 
the swift reaction from elected officials here in New Mexico, uh, from our governor, from our attorney general, from local officials down in Las Cruces and in Sunland Park, and also in El Paso, which is culturally pretty similar to, mm -hmm. to New Mexico in many ways. And that really stood in contrast to the way that these armed groups, these paramilitary groups are treated in, in Arizona or in Texas and in, just in different parts of the border. Their authorities in those states aren't so swift to condemn and to crack down. And, and so, Patty, I'd like to j just start off with a question. What makes New Mexico different in this sense from our neighbors, from the way that we, that we approach interference in our own affairs or the way that we approach issues of sovereignty and and even just human rights violations that may be carried out. I don't want to uh, seem to salute or celebrate conquest, but I do think it is really lucky for the United States that New Mexico is a part of it. So, <laughs> we'll start with that because I'm so sorry, but Simon, on Saturday, your newspaper had a story about poly about uh, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren trying to find ways to address inequalities in wealth, and the nice reporter, I'm sure she's a very fine person, kept the framework of that story was entirely about could this these people address race and income inequality. And she gave no indication that she knew there was any other pairing except white people and African-American people. And that was this Saturday in your newspaper. And <laughs> you didn't write that story. And I, must, I didn't enjoy seeing that framework. And I can only imagine that you must have your moments, too, of thinking these people need to get out more. And <laughs> where they might get out to would be the state that actually has never had an occasion where you could ever have any simple pairing. Mexican and Indian? No, the, the tribal folks are so diverse. Uh, Mexican-American people and Mexican immigrants and the different layers of arrival. So there's no way you could have a simple-minded pairing if mm -hmm. your attention is on New Mexico. It just factually, I mean, you have to deal with facts. That's not everybody's idea of a good time these days. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just, I so appreciate the fact that New Mexico is a place where you have to just keep thinking. Who am I dealing with? What is my superficial impression? Superficial is not going to do it for me. I have to go beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's, it's a world of... Uh, richness and complexity, I guess I, I just want to say that one of the things that I think is so lost in certain visions of Western American history is that the poles of violence and amiable and congenial exchange, those aren't even really poles. Those are intertwined that uh, white Indian relations are such a mixture of intermarriage and trade and violence. And so it's just excellent to see what a totally scrambled Category, a category that wants to have a healthy life and rule and be robust has better just stay out of New Mexico. <laughs> this is a, a category, uh, it's a hazardous zone for simple categories, which right. is really great. So I, I appreciate that so much that the, the phrase that Edward Spicer, the great anthropologist, used, cycles of conquest. 
used it for more or less the whole Southwest, but this is clearly the focal point mm -hmm. of that. And just that there's such a layering, and anytime you think, I've got it now, I've got it figured out, I've got it in a, why I could do a, a, a graph, I could do a, a pie chart, or I could do some, no, you can't. It's dynamic, it's changing, and it's always been that way, and it's wonderful to have that, such a the, the, the word conquest is such a, it's such a powerful term in some ways, and it, and it really, it stands in contrast to the word frontier, yes. which, which has been used, which was used and still is used to describe what, what New Mexico was like uh, after 1848. Um, and in a sense, what it's still like, right? Oh, it's a frontier type of place. And right. when, when in fact, this is a conquered land. Right. So right. Uh, pa Pablo, are we seeing sort of a reevaluation of that, of the language that's used to describe what happened in this part of the West? I think so. I, I, and I also think about it as a borderlands. And that, for me, puts it in much more into motion and is much more attuned to differentials of power. I mean, going back to the first question, I think my suspicion is part of the reason there was a condemnation in New Mexico is that politicians found that they needed to do that if they wanted to continue to be politicians because there were enough <laughs> activists and political activists, many of whom maybe even here today, who were forcing then the politicians to then do that condemnation that wasn't occurring in Arizona and wasn't occurring in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I really appreciate about a kind of a borderlands framework is that it, puts it brings power to the forefront and says that these are spaces where there are inequalities of power and we have to be attuned to power, um, that in a certain way, conquest and frontier, while they talk about power, um, don't talk about it moving back and forth, and I don't think talk about it in the kind of layers that I think are, are for me, are really kind of interesting and worth mm -hmm. thinking about. Um, you, you know, right, right here in Taos, it's so interesting, uh, and right here, where nearby where we're sitting is the Kit Carson uh, Memorial Cemetery. And I, I took a stroll through there today, and it was so interesting just to look at the incredible gravestones, and uh, of course, but, but there's also a plaque that, that remembers the American soldiers who were, who were killed in the, uh, when, when they were quelling uh, the, the uprising here in 1847 during the Mexican-American War. There's a plaque naming each of those soldiers, but there's no remembrance of the people who were who were killed in who were killed by the occupying forces at that time. I mean, who were contained within a church right here in Taos, and uh, and and many of them shot to death. Um, Dirk Derwood, what you know? Are, do we still have a ways to go, perhaps, to to properly describe what 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 happened here in New Mexico? During that during that war of conquest, in the uh, there's a very good book that just came out by uh, Greg Mishno on the U.S. occupation of New Mexico during the war. It's the best thing I've ever seen. I, I peer reviewed it for Oklahoma Press. He gets into the nitty gritty detail. I've written on this myself, but he's gotten even deeper. And you know, this is the bloodless conquest, of course, um, the occupation of. Santa Fe in 1846 was the, the bloodless conquest, but there's a war afterward. And, um, you know, we don't, they recognize the seven or eight U.S. soldiers killed in the assault on the, uh, the uh, mission church in, uh, in Taos Pueblo, um, but they don't talk about the 50, 60 people, uh, natives and Nuevo Mexicanos killed because they were run down 
by mounted troops after the U.S. forces uh, breached the walls of the church. Inside the church, right? They, they, yeah. they breached the walls of the church, they flushed everybody out, and then they ran them down. You know, it's, that doesn't get talked about as much. Hmm. It was a, the, the war here is always talked about very benignly. It's described very benignly, but make no mistake, there was a nasty, nasty war, really kind of a war of insurgency and counterinsurgency. And it's not as heroic as attacking Molino del Rey and in Mexico City. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of war. And uh, it just doesn't, it's not as heroic. But it took a great toll of lives here. And, uh, Related to that, to that time, and I guess just sort of like the immediate, not the immediate, but the years post-conquest, um, New Mexico actually looked very different than it looks today on the map. Mm -hmm. we, we have an idea of, of sort of like, you know, what, what New Mexico looks like, but Arizona belonged to us. <laughs> uh, and, and, and many, many Listen to the native New Mexican talking. <laughs> well, well, technically, legally, it did. Yeah, absolutely, right. Absolutely. Uh, and, then, and then the Arizona Territory was created after the mm -hmm. conquest. And I've always just wondered how that happened. What, what, why did they feel the need to split New Mexico in like that, Patty. Well, I, I do want to say just a word about the, um, the C word and the F word mm -hmm. that as a young person, I did not find the word frontier helpful. It just seemed like such a cover of the kind of violence that that's speaking of. And it seemed to claim a distinctiveness for the United States that we had, that South Africa had had an invasion and a conquest and Australia had had an invasion and a conquest and we had an expanding zone of frontier opportunity and democracy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Well, all right. So, so that was one of my campaigns. That it was very. I don't know if it was helpful that the word frontier. We started calling it the F word. I don't know if that helped her or not. Uh, but it seemed very important. And I did talk to historians of many different parts of the planet. I would just stop them in the courtyards and just say, "Is the word conquest inherently?" pejorative is it and they would say no it's something that happens everywhere and different things come out of it right and it's not a well okay so it has many different meanings and one of the things that happens after a conquest is what you're speaking of the drawing of lines mm -hmm. and that initially seems like a rather dull matter of, of drawing lines on the planet but in fact it's such an amazing act of human uh, exaggeration of our powers to think that you could send that poor, poor fellow, John Russell Bartlett was a poor fool who had been a bookseller in, um, in Rhode Island, right, in Providence, Rhode Island, and then suddenly he's, the, uh, the, he's surveying the border between Mexico and the United States after the war. Being a bookseller prepares you for lots of things, but that, that not that. So, and it's so arbitrary and so strange to be drawing that line across, across space. And so that is really an entrancing story. And I'm, I'm sure that probably some people have made some very interesting digital applications of that to show this just proliferation of lines that happen after the conquest. Because once you have conquered it, you want, if you're on the conquering side, you want to master it. Mm -hmm. And that does mean creating the borders. The struggle over the Texas 
uh, New Mexico border is is hair raising in every imaginable way, and almost goes almost. I get. I don't want to say almost. I guess, but there's a stage where Congress is considering just having the Texas Santa Fe expedition of the 1840s having that prevail, having. Well, I'm trying to say this in a um, diplomatic way. I don't know why I am, because it's just, this could have been Texas. This could have been Texas, right? Yeah, you could have been living in, this could be Taos, Texas, by the way. Yeah, Taos, <laughs> Texas. And That's here already, so. right. and some very strange things were going on in terms of the incorporation of new territories into the United States involving yep. the slavery question. And so it was certainly full of possibilities and contingencies. So that's wild. So, okay, so this area posed a problem to the usual process or posed an obstacle in the minds of the, the decision makers that you're supposed to take new territory and then you're supposed to put it through a process of territorial government, population grows, and then you have an, a statehood and you have an enabling act and so on. Mm -hmm. And that had worked in many parts of, the, of North America. And then it couldn't work here because the discussed subject during the onset of the Mexican-American War and the fighting the Mexican-American War and the movement on the part of some uh, American leaders to say they wanted all Mexico, with that then countered by plenty of other Americans saying too many dark people. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. it's too many dark people. And this was how it was openly discussed at the time, oh, right? Yes. Explicitly. Oh, Lord, yes. Right. Lord, yes. Even yeah. in terms more yeah. derogatory. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and, as, and the United States had, uh, from the part of the conquerors, a sense of there's too many of those dark people as it is. Mm -hmm. So that was the reckoning with New Mexico was to think, well, we have that. And there's too many of the people that we don't see as promising Right. for our purposes here. So uh, Theodore Roosevelt, when he did support statehood, he said he was supporting it because that was after 40 years of tutelage, of bringing the dark people up to a level where they might be considered for statehood. Just out there, I mean, Theodore wow. Roosevelt uh, is a delightful character in many ways until you notice how much he liked eugenics and <laughs> how much oh, yeah. he thought white women should be reproducing so that the dark people wouldn't outproduce them. So, Incredible. Okay, so no, are we talking about Theodore Roosevelt? <laughs> no, we're not, so let's not go there. But, but it is but it is a big problem that this area poses, and splitting Arizona and New Mexico is one way of saying there's fewer of the dark people mm -hmm. there. In both cases, the non-vanishing Indian people are so unmistakable that that's actually another really great aspect of this region's mm -hmm. history is that in other parts of the West, the removal process was so unrelenting that it is easy enough. I have heard, if I hear one more Denverite say it to me, you know, I don't think I've ever met an Indian. Do you happen to know who's living next door to you maybe? I mean, could you imagine that wow. that person might be on the bus or something? Mm -hmm. But that can happen in some of the states where removal was so unrelenting. The fact that there's so many tribal mm -hmm. folks here and they're politically important. Some of the things that the public officials have to think about and mm -hmm. might be more responsive to is that. So, so okay, so this drawing of lines on the map, very big deal, and I'll now pass to the mm -hmm. person who actually <laughs> teaches New Mexico history um, <laughs> the border with, uh, with Arizona and its genesis. Well, one of the reasons we, we um, created Arizona Territory is the Union troops from California drove the Confederates out of uh, Tucson and uh, drove them back down into to Texas. So we needed to um, 
we needed another government there and we needed another union territory. And so it was partly a, a strategic decision on the part of the Lincoln administration to create Arizona because the, obviously the government in Santa Fe could not really govern that big a territory. And, uh, there's another, does anybody know the other part of, Santa, of New Mexico that uh, was taken away? Yes, Southern, Southern Colorado. Yeah, yeah, the notch. Uh, we we uh, had to give that to uh, Colorado, and it's created all kinds of problems for the people left behind there. I think that might be temporary. <laughs> I think um, anybody who's, um, who takes a visit to the San Luis Valley thinks we don't know that, but that's a very arbitrary border, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, culturally, it's crossed every second. So yeah, I yeah. just, yeah. I, I will. I, I did not fare well as the state historian, but I will reactivate my role as state historian and preside over the ceremony of saying, well, that border didn't work out. So maybe a little bit more inclusiveness there. But Pablo, when, when um, in that whole debate, kind of leading up to statehood, uh -huh. uh, and it was done in fits and starts, and, right. and, and there was a plan to actually put Arizona and New Mexico back together, uh -huh. then, then, then that fell apart. Um, during that time, there was there was um, this identity crystallizing here in New Mexico uh, among Nuevo Mexicanos, and how did that happen? I mean, was was there already a pre-existing identity of of the people who had lived here for centuries, or sure. or did that did that accelerate after the conquest? I mean, anytime you have a conquest, that's going to change the you know the the racial dynamics and the racial identity that that comes up, and when there are new kind of borders being drawn. So, I think the a big story of the second half of the 19th century is Mexicano and Mexicana loss of land, uh, the kind of loss of ability to own land, loss of ability to control labor, loss of it turned into kind of manual laborers. So that story is, goes throughout to Texas, New Mexico, California, um, in parts of Arizona as well. And so this is a period where whoever Mexicanos are really are struggling, struggling to get a foothold. And one way that um, appeared to them to be able to gain a foothold is by claiming, in, a, in essence, a, a type of whiteness. And that is by claiming then a Spanish-European heritage, or at least a kind of a, a bloodline in that way. And that, in a certain way, makes perfect sense, that when folks are in a struggling situation, they're just trying to get some kind of foothold. Um, and you can see that in uh, later in the 20th century, Mexicans at various times would claim themselves to be white as opposed to black. Um, and that, again, is where our kind of the, the racial binary of black and white really starts to break down. So, so yes, it starts to accelerate in the late 19th century, and uh, especially elite um, Mexican, Mexicanos and Mexicanos are starting to claim more of a Spanish uh, identity, and, and in that way, kind of uh, making certain claims of whiteness. And that's just not just a racial claim, right? That all we know, all of these different claims cross over into gender behavior, into sexual comportment, into who is uh, has appropriate types of sex, who has inappropriate types of sex. Increasingly, it's also in contrast, and so much of identity is really in contrast. It's not as much who I am; it's who I am not. So in New Mexico, it's often I am not native, right? If for Mexicanos, I am Spanish. It's also very much within the context of U.S. imperialism. So it's also in the context after 1898 of the Philippines, of Cuba, of Puerto Rico. So that claim of Spanishness 
also has a subtle claim of being non-black, right, and not having the African ancestry like Cubans might or Puerto Ricans, of being non-Asian, which folks from the Philippines would have as well. And so as then the U.S. expands in terms of its territorial expansion and its ambitions into the Pacific, into the Caribbean, New Mexicans are part of that conversation. So we want to see it as, in some ways, as, as isolated and parochial, but they're very cosmopolitan people. They realize that whiteness is really spreading around and claims to whiteness have a, have a broad kind of span. That's so fascinating. Um, what, what, what about after statehood? Um, you know, there's the question of uh, whether New Mexico has received um, equal treatment to other states, mm -hmm. um, whether it's really fully part of the union that forms the United States or not. Mm -hmm. uh, where, where are we in that, in, in that sense? I mean, looking back. Uh, well, I think the, you know, the issues that uh, Pablo brings up, um, the, the, the racial complexity of New Mexico is really beyond anything the United States, the United States can manage. I mean, we're, we, we push toward a binary, a biracial society. We've kind of accomplished that, at least rhetorically, you know, by World War II. Uh, but New Mexico just doesn't fit, just doesn't fit the, the mold. And one of the problems that the United States encountered when it came to New Mexico or incorporated New Mexico in, in 1848 was, um, do these people, how do these people fit? You know, how do they fit into the, to the United States? And these are Mexican descent people. These are people culturally linked to the central, you know, to northern northern Mexico. They're Catholic. Their Catholicism is Mexican and then Spanish farther back. That's a real problem for the United States, which, you know, comes from the east, does not like the Mexican or the Spanish Catholic Church. And Nuevo Mexicanos resist. They resist white supremacy. They are really, in many ways, you know, the, they're, they're, they're involuntary citizens of the United States. You know, to go back to your, your earlier discussion, why, why do we respond so quickly to the white supremacists on the border? It's because we resisted white supremacists, Anglo-Americans, who, through the Louisiana Purchase, claim New Mexico all the way all the way to the Rio Grande. We resisted Texas violently in 1841. We resisted Texas again in 1850, was threatening a, a, um, um, some, an invasion of New Mexico. We resist, resisted them again in the, the Civil War. Um, this is an incredibly complex place that doesn't fit into all the boxes that the United States wants to put Nuevo Mexicanos and its native populations into. It just doesn't work. And I think, I, I really in many ways believe that maybe politically we're incorporated, but I think socially and culturally we are not. That's an incomplete project in this country and it makes our president crazy. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> Uh, it's uh, it's so interesting. Um, 
as, as part of my job, I, I spend a fair amount of time with white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> I do. Better I do. you we than have, me. <laughs> we, 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 we have to cover um, what's going on in our country, and that's one of the things that's happening mm -hmm. now. Uh, one of the things they, they sometimes mention to me is this fear of invasion. Mm -hmm. And they think, they, they fear that society has already changed so much in the places where they're from. Almost none are from New Mexico, which is, which is very interesting. But they fear that it, it might come to resemble what New Mexico is like now, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is which is very, you know, it, it did. So that's what I think is uh, so striking in this is that first I want to say a word about invasion, then I just want to say uh, Manhattan. Uh, New York City became New Mexico in terms of its, its diversity and complexity and the mm -hmm. shiftiness of care. So, in fact, it was the precedent setter for those who thought that uh, Americans who thought they would create some ordered society where you could take a quick glimpse and see by the color of the skin or whatever, you would just know who that person was, didn't happen. So, in fact, the diversity of Western race relations, and particularly New Mexico, that and I said, I, I'm afraid I was overstating regionalism in my younger days, and I was making it sound as if we did not have the Iroquois nations in New York State. We did not have the Eastern Cherokee. I mean, there's, these issues are everywhere, and it's really more of a chance to say, well, it was the wave of the future. Right. It just took a while before anyone, anyone noticed that. And this concept of invasion is so interesting. Richard White wrote this wonderful piece about Buffalo Bill. In the Buffalo Bill Wild West, there are, there's a settler's cabin, and the cabin is a attacked by Indians. There's a stagecoach, and the stagecoach is attacked by Indians, and Richard referred to that as the inverted conquest, <laughs> because who invaded whom? Did they, did, uh, the people were quite seafaring. Did Indian people go to England and invade England? So that curious sense of who invaded whom is right there in that mythologizing moment that the settler lives in a cabin, and the Indians just get in the mood and, and start attacking it. Right. So it's just, it's so preposterous as a reversal of who invaded whom. So I hadn't quite thought about that, but in a weird way, we're back on that play again of, yeah. Yeah. you are the descendants of the invaders? Well, you know a lot about invasion, don't you? I mean, no wonder you're anxious about invaders on, on that. But I guess I'm, I'm really so taken with this notion that, that any moment a deep breath could occur where people could say, well, it turned out that it is very hard to categorize people. Mm -hmm. and, and even when you get them in something that works, it's dynamic. And this place keeps changing and, and moving. And it's really quite wondrous to take inspiration from the Mormons, if I might suggest that, because the Mormons had a prohibition on blacks and the priesthood. Blacks could not be members of the priesthood. Then, so much conversion in Latin America left the Mormons unable to say who was black. Mm -hmm. It was just, they had a policy, and, and Brazil especially just knocked that policy out. So they, uh, what do you know, they had a revelation, and now they, don't, they didn't prohibit blacks in the priesthood on that. So that moment of just thinking, we had some very firm rules, and we thought we could enforce them, and then it turned out that human complexity is too great, so let's have a revelation. Mm -hmm. I'm also <laughs> struck by thinking about white supremacy as, um, 
it is so tied to victimization and what kind of supremacy is so ingrained in white supremacy is whites as victims and it goes mm -hmm. deep and so so this sense of, of white people as constantly expanding as entrepreneurial as moving across the plains as Oregon Trail all these things it shifts then to be about invasion um, and that's I think was a really interesting place in the history of whiteness when that shift kind of started yeah. and when kind of the the main way to under a main way to understand being white of a certain group in this country is a sense of being invaded and a sense of trying to hold on and having people for all around you coming and attacking you and that to me is a really important shift um, I'm not sure how we get where New Mexico fits into that shift mm -hmm. but I know it's there and maybe we can you know spend a few more minutes maybe talking about lessons. that maybe we have, yeah we can you know teach well, something to, yeah, to other places right. that may that may feel like some anxiety right, this right. Time. or a sense that whites never had that control in New Mexico that they would have yeah. elsewhere. They were never able to push the native peoples out. They were never able to push the Hispanos and Hispanas out. And so they had to change. And so whiteness plays out differently in New Mexico than it does elsewhere. Um, and that's really worth kind of thinking about. Again, going back to white supremacy yeah. that, you know, is condemned in New Mexico uh, so quickly. Along these lines um, is is kind of like how the how identity has evolved mm. in in New Mexico over the over the decades, yeah. and how it's changing now. Um, my my kids go to school in Albuquerque, and and almost all of their classmates. It's really striking. Not almost all. Many of their classmates are coyote, which you know here here in New Mexico means someone who is of Hispanic and, and Anglo heritage. So there's this. The, and if and it, it's, it's amazing, if I look at like the obituary column, which I do, you know, in, in, the, in the Albuquerque Journal, I read it, and if you look at, at the survivors of people, you see so many coyotes also. It, it's just, it's happening. Mm -hmm. and, and yet that's not the original meaning of coyote in New Mexico, right? It, it, it started out meaning something else, and then it, and then it shifted. Mm -hmm. What did it originally mean, and how did it... Uh, he wrote the yeah. book with that title. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> it was really part of a kind of a broader Latin American racial hierarchies, and so then, which was very complex um, in terms of who was half uh, mulatto and then who was half native and who was half Spanish and so on. But it was also about power. These were hierarchies of power. So coyote was one of those in between. So it suggested a mixture of peoples. Now it's come to be more of a mixture between kind of Anglos and then um, and the Hispanos and Hispanas but again I think there's we sometimes have this tendency to kind of romanticize and you know I'm, I'm mixed and so at various times I kind of romanticize like oh best of both worlds all of these kind of things but it's also about power imbalances and I think that the fact that it comes from a, a hierarchy uh, of race and status and privilege and power in Latin America in Latin, in the Spanish America it still means we still have to be attuned to that, even if it's, we're not quite aware of that, that there are still power differentials um, that we need to be aware of in, in understanding mixture, people who are mixed and coyote. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, uh, and we, we've had th this mixing going on, I mean, since the very beginning of, you know, the arrival of, uh, of, of the Spanish. And then, and then the Americans, too. I mean, go going back to that cemetery, m many of those, the, the people buried there, mm -hmm. uh, were of mixed unions right. or children of those. Yeah. It's, it's, so this has been going on for a long time, right. yeah. and and yet and yet at the, in other parts of the country at the same time there was a lot of apprehension about mixing and. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and fear. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you, you came from the south. I mean, um, well, what, what yeah. was it like to come here to New Mexico and yeah. and well, where see I grew up? Things? You know, the, in the south, Arkansas, by the way. Um, it, uh, <clears throat> yeah, miscegenation, you know, was not simply not supposed to happen, and you know, just right up into the. 70s, but uh, of course it, it did happen. Uh, that is, the mixing of the races uh, did did occur. But in New Mexico, it, it's um, Anglo's when they came here to New Mexico had to deal with the large um, Hispano population, yeah, which was probably 50,000 in um, 1846. So if you were an Anglo merchant uh, coming to uh, make money in New Mexico and to live here, you really had to deal with and sort of embed yourself in the, uh, the Nuevo Mexicano population. And that's where you get the intermarriages between, say, Kit Carson and Josefa, uh, Charles Bent and uh, Josefa's uh, sister. Um, these, are, these are people who... Um, um, had to deal, had to deal with the, the population. They had to, and you know, join, join it. Really, they also, I think, had to convert to Catholicism and as part of the, part of the package. So, um, but in order to make money here, you had to, you had to marry into native populations and, uh, and Hispanic populations. And that's, um, and that was really true into up, right up into the late 20th century. Uh, um, I mean, I, the, I, I mean, the late 19th century, I'm sorry. Wanted, uh, because we all enjoyed our moment of thinking of the president being mad, I wanted to <laughs> just go in a peculiar direction of just saying that I want to note there that making money as a motive could promote more um, open encounters with people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that, that that is an okay motive for me. If making a profit produces better behavior and better conduct, and I totally get the power to, you're marrying into a Mexican yeah, family yeah. so you can have access to the resources, but I'm just having a, a capitalist epiphany here of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Again. I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I'm sorry, but I might get over it as the evening goes on here, but it just seems like I am so okay with that motive. Um, the, the Jewish merchants, who yes. came in and were remarkably adaptable to that. And I understand it's a profit-driven yeah. transaction. You look pretty cute, honey, I mean, because I can see the money that is connected to that. Well, I'm okay with that. If it, if it does take these, our wonderful, wonderful friend Peggy Pascoe wrote a great book about anti-miscegenation laws in the West, and in her honor, she passed away a few years ago, but I would just say that is a wonderful book to remind us that those are, those are intense and terrible ways of dividing people. As Peggy says, in many parts of the West, I would assume that must have happened here, the county clerks were put into a tizzy because they would have a statute about who could marry whom, and they'd be, who are these people having to figure that out? So I, I am I'm just okay with the profit motive, is all I'm telling you now. So it's a way of well, and to add to that, it's not as if the Mexican population or Mexicanos weren't interested in the profit motive themselves, right? These are long-standing yeah. merchants from generationally, generationally 
generations of merchant yeah. families who are then coming and starting to see, well, maybe it would be helpful to have an Anglo son-in-law. Um, or maybe not, but we could see um, it might yeah. be who has yeah. connections in St. Louis or knows somebody right. in Boston uh, and so on. So again, this is a dynamic people in the early part of the 19th mm -hmm. century who are themselves are also thinking, how can we take advantage um, and how can we profit from this new kind of situation that's coming up? It's also worth thinking about the, the young women, the young Hispanas who married. And there have been long kind of stories about, oh, you know, she was 17 when she married that 45-year-old <laughs> man, and then he died and she was left a widow. Well, she was left a widow, you know, so she had a lot of, pro a lot of property at that <laughs> point, and she might have another 20 or 30 years of actually controlling some of that property. So, yes, love's important, but it's also worth thinking about oh, these women as oh. making some really active choices in terms of who yeah. their marriage partners are. Um, and so another way we can kind of yeah. think about intermarriage in that right. way, too. I think it's also important to, to realize, too, that there was a great deal of affection in these marriages. These weren't all just, you know, Anglo guys coming in and, and um, you know, trying to set themselves up in business on the backs of, uh, you know, Hispanic families. They, these men loved to love their wives and, uh, and their children. And there's, there's a lot more to it, actually, than, you know, than the, we often hear in the books. Uh, um, going back in time a little bit, um, back even before the conquest, uh, w one of the most kind of pivotal moments in, in New Mexico's history seems to be in 1680 during mm -hmm. with the Pueblo Revolt, oh. mm -hmm. uh, when there was an uprising against the conquerors, and they were expelled for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how did that? How did that episode sort of influence the, the development of New Mexico afterward? I think one of the things that we as historians, when we're looking at kind of social movements, we sometimes we have a hard time, if a group was only around for, say, five years, um, having a sense of their impact. And so you can think about, say, a, a gay liberation organization in the Bay Area, this group called Gala, who was a Latino gay organization in the early 1970s. Didn't last very long, but it was incredibly important in terms of bringing Latinos together into, um, into this broader gay liberation movement. So how do we assess that? So it was an incredibly successful um, uh, revolution then in 1680, lasted 12 years, were able to keep the Spanish out 12 years, and then the Spanish came back. One of the really important things that happened after that is the Spanish, the missionaries are no longer going out to the Pueblos. Um, so they are not actively um, missionizing in the, the different Pueblo villages and so on. And so they're staying in their own villages. And that is a really important shift. So that's an incredibly successful then revolution. Even if the Spanish come back, they're not coming back into all of these different Pueblos. So that holds folks off. And for the native people are holding then the Spanish off from coming into their villages and trying to transform them. And, um, often in violent ways. Again, part of what the legacy is, is that's the legacy then of then native peoples holding on to their land, holding on to their autonomy within different pueblos in New Mexico that's different um, in some of the other uh, places in the country. So in that way, it's incredibly, it, it resonates for then centuries after, it resonates in 1780, it resonates in 1880. And in a certain way, it even kind of resonates in, in 1980, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, Another question I had, and anyone feel free to jump in, is sort of like, you know, New Mexico is 
is so different from other states. Its history is, is, is different. Um, the, uh, the pre-conquest period was, is, is very different. Um, and yet there are also some similarities and a, a state like Hawaii comes to mind mm -hmm. where, and I went to Hawaii for the first time last year and it was just fascinating. It's another one of those places you think might be easy to understand and then you arrive there and it's just like, oh my gosh, it's really, really complex. Every island is different. Mm -hmm. Every island is its own society. Um, and, and Hawaii was also conquered territory, right. right? There was a monarchy that was overthrown with, you know, American planters moved in mm -hmm. and, and essentially created yeah. a forged modern Hawaii in that way. Um, are, are there any other parallels in the, in the West, you know, for, for instance, you know, with, with New Mexico um, that have a similar kind of, where, where the identity is intertwined with that experience of conquest? Well, <laughs> uh, so I carry a torch for this soldier. I've forgotten his dates exactly. It was a, uh, James Byrne, who was here in the 1870s, I think. And he was walking down the street in Santa Fe, and he, he wrote in his uh, memoir about how he was asking, I guess he was asking for directions, and people, he was asking in perfectly clear English, and people were responding in Spanish, and that was very frustrating to him. And then this guy, James Byrne, BYU, Burn, he says, it suddenly occurred to me that this was their country. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Suddenly, okay, the yeah. military, I don't know. Um, he was not the most reviled, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, but, it, but it's just this interesting moment of this white guy just thinking, oh, there's something else going on here, and it's been going on for a long time. And he says, he actually says something, and I realized I was the latecomer and the rival. So I think that there are places where we are... Uh, we get to see situations where people who are not planning to be particularly self-aware and to think of themselves in a more dynamic system that evolved before them, where they have to do that. Hmm. And they have to do that uh, in Hawaii, wherever the power is settled and whatever has become of the monarchy, there's just this population that you have to say, I don't want to say this, but uh, we're not in Kansas, Toto. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're somewhere that's very different. And our relationality and our position has, we've got to be more aware of that. We've got to think about that. And so I think in many places in the American West in the last half of the 19th century, any Indian agency, there was a tiny group of white folks, the agent, the teacher, <coughs> the farmer, uh, and, and that would be a tiny little unit of white folks in a place that was clearly not their domain. Mm -hmm. So I think there's more of that thinking going on, and it's not always comfortable, and, and fewer as graceful as Byrne in saying, oh, I am the outsider here. But there are places that that continues, and the offer is made to people who thought they were the norm, they were the unspoken definition of, well, that's what a human society is, where, where you get to say, oh, perhaps I am not the norm here. Right. <laughs> uh, and perhaps I am the exception. And so I think, I think the Hawaii comparison and the New Mexico comparison is that just that offer can be made to many people who will turn it down, mm -hmm. who will say, well, then we have to change this so that I do represent the norm. But there is a surprising number of, of uh, or, I don't know, people have a receptivity to say, 
I'd rather not be bored. I think it's as elemental as that. That right. when you were with the people who are all like you and you were all saying the same thing and thinking the same thing and, and predicting each other in exact ways, you might as well just take a nap. It's, just, <laughs> it's so not worth being alive at that a nap from which you may not awaken, yeah. I guess, if you go for the full <laughs> course on this. But I, I think that's a really great opportunity offered here to say, why not live with greater attention and alertness and more sense of uh, where I am and how much around me is more interesting than right. I am. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. We're going to open it up to questions now from, from the audience. So. That's right. We are about to open it up to questions. But first, a round of applause for a fantastic panel tonight. There are two of us here with microphones tonight, one in either aisle, so please make your ways toward the aisle if you'd like to ask a question tonight. I'd be grateful if you ask, your, say, your first and last name before your question, and this part of the evening will also be recorded and posted online tomorrow at whatitmeanstobeamerican.org. I'll give you all a, little, a couple more minutes to make it to the aisle ways. I know it's a long way. I'll take the first question here on the left. Uh, my question is, if any of you four esteemed panelists, and you've done a great job, and Patty Limerick always does a great job, <laughs> but my question is, uh, if anyone on the panel, and I know that you could, Senor Romero, I have this document, because we're talking about what it means to be an American. And let me be very frank. The majority of the people here are American. I'm not, how many here have ever heard of this document? Escrito en español, Marzo 24, 1892, Manifiesto al Pueblo de Nuevo México. Do any of you have any knowledge of this document and can you repeat what I just said, the document is titled, because it came right down from Talpa, right over here. How many have heard of it or can tra translate it? Pueblo, Mexico. Next question on the right. Well, but we're eager to, we'll hang out at the reception. We'll be, we'll be smarter at the reception. You'll, yeah. you'll help us at the reception get smarter. That will be, that's why we have reception, so that the panelists can get smarter. So that'll be our action plan. Next question on the right. Hi, I'm Carter Griffin. Um, my question is, um, could you discuss a bit about the impact of land grants and how that might have affected, you know, talking about white people coming here and what have you, that there was something quite established here by the time they got here. And uh, not just with the Hispanic population, but of course, all the Pueblos. I think it's, it's worth, and I think the previous uh, gentleman alluded to it in a certain way, that 
the Spanish were conquering as well. And so just as we were talking about surveying land and creating boundaries of land, that that was occurring under the Spanish and the Mexican system as well. And so that's why we do have these kind of overlapping systems of then uh, of land grants and of trying to maintain elite statuses of people which are then providing land for them. And so we have then overlapping then kind of colonial systems here. And I think the land grants are a really good example of that and the process of, of surveying land is very much a part of almost any colonial system you can imagine. Right. I think the, um, the land grants were enormously important when the Spanish came back, when they reconquered uh, New Mexico. So one of the things that the crown did was he got rid of the uh, system of encomienda, which gave Hispano conquerors a, a right to the products of uh, a percentage of the products of the labor of, of Indians or native peoples. That was uh, gotten rid of when they came back. And the crown gave the Pueblos land, or he created for each Pueblo the Pueblo League. It was created in order to, uh, in part, protect them, to make it very clear you know, where their land was. But on the other hand, he also rather than granting uh, encomienda to, to the conquerors, he uh, basically began, the Spanish crown or the viceroy or the governors of New Mexico began to uh, dispense land grants. And this was a way to attract people to New Mexico, it was a way to, for the um, crown to organize people to create uh, or to produce from the land, use the resources, and make New Mexico pay for itself, which it never did and never has um, to this day, actually. So, um, so that's that's part of the history of, of land grants, and, and, and even more land grants were given out during the Mexican period, uh, from 1821 to, to 1845. So, next question is on your left, Andres Vargas. Uh, would you address the issue of, you touched on the issue of resistance to the white invasion and uh, part of the reason that the hatred of and dislike of Texans is because of the discrimination that they uh, foisted on people of color and uh, Chicanos in particular. Uh, and. Um, that hate and that resistance continues with respect to Native Americans today, uh, as well as uh, Chicanos. And um, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz has a, written a book and uh, addresses that issue. Would you comment on that, please? Um, um, yes, the uh, New Mexicans have um, resisted uh, various invasions, uh, you know, over know, over the, the decades, and um, they, um, of course, um, resisted the Texans first. I mean, that's, uh, that's where their resistance began, because Nuevo Mexicanos were very, very clear about what happened in Texas, that the, the Mexican government allowed um, the um, Anglos from the South and the Midwest to come in and settle Texas and develop Texas. Um, and then in 1835-36, the uh, Anglo-Texans rebel, rise up, and, and, and create, kick out the Mexican government and create the Texas Republic. Well, here, one of the uh, slogans was, we're not going to be the next Texas. 
you know, we did not want to be the next Texas. But who, and so Texas could actually make that happen or the United States could make, make it happen. Um, and one of the reasons the Mexicans did resist the U.S. invasion was that the United States lied to the New Mexicans. Uh, when General Kearney came in with the U.S. Army in eight, summer of 1846, he said, we only, want, we only want New Mexico up to the Rio Grande. You guys can have the rest of it. But it became very clear in a few months that the United States is going to take all of New Mexico because it's the road to California, or one of the two roads. And uh, that, in part, explains the resistance of New Mexicans during the war to, uh, to the Anglos, to the U.S. I would like to uh, add my wonderful, wonderful kind of protege, Alice Baumgartner, has just finished a dissertation, is now finishing a manuscript that I think everyone would find very interesting. It is about how so much, well, start, it's, it's too much, well, a lot of attention has gone to the Underground Railroad by which slaves escape into Canada. Almost no attention has gone to the Underground Railroad by which Texas slaves escaped into Mexico. And Mexico had led an abolition. Mexico did have, by 1837, a, a law, the date right? I think I do, 1837. Anyway, uh, before the Civil War, Mexico had abolished slavery and black slaves in Texas knew that and saw Mexico as the land where freedom was not just a word, but something to go to. So that's got to be somewhere in the, in the tracks here that Texans saw White Texan slave owners saw Mexico as a threat to their property because Mexico led an abolition. Mm -hmm. Just when that recognition changed after that, uh, well, how much New Mexico was implicated in that, the Texans thinking of New Mexico as a place that was challenging their, mm -hmm. their slave, their property. But that to me is just such an interesting dimension of the way in which at the Alamo, Santa Ana was the part was the leader of liberation for black slaves. Mm -hmm. So to recognize how much and of course Mexico was doing that partly to to make the United States look hypocritical because it was. So I just think that whole struggle over slavery and Mexico's leading and ending slavery, Mexico had indentured servants. So it's not uh, Everyone lived under uh, free and, and open conditions, but it is really important to see how that might track back into the into the past um, and carry over into all these. In Mexico, the liberal constitution of 1824 uh, abolished slavery, mm. and that's a that's a big thing. That's a powerful thing in North America. Um, it also granted all sedentary Indians citizenship, so the pueblos became citizens. What's fascinating is they were stripped of their citizenship by the United States after the conquest, not right away, but within a couple of decades, they became wards of the state. They lost their citizenship. So they're one of the only populations in the United States to sort of experience that. Uh, that Can as I well. just add in terms of resistance that resistance occurs on all kinds of different levels and as historians we try to pay as much attention to that as we can and I think art is a perfect example of that and so how do we kind of understand art once we have a lens of resistance and a lens of kind of endurance and so on so is uh, R.C. Gorman is that art of resistance how do we maybe understand
understand art differently once we start to think about it as forms of resistance. Um, uh, so that might be another kind of aspect of the resistance that we've been talking about. We've got time for maybe one just or two more questions. So just a reminder to keep our questions brief and try to keep our answers as brief as possible. If you didn't have a, question, a chance to ask your question here during the program, all of our panelists will be at the reception afterwards so you can ask a question there. Susan has the next question on the right. Oh, my name is Fabiola. Fabiola <laughs> Romero. And I don't have a question so much as I have some clarification on the marriage of Americans into local families. 25 years ago, I was at a presentation by a woman whose first name I don't remember, but her last name was Jaramillo. And she wrote her PhD on compadrasco. Compadrasco is a relationship between marriages. And she pointed out that the Americans who married into local Hispanic families didn't marry into poor families. They married into rich families. For instance, Kit Carson and Bent, the governor that was imposed on this part of the world by the Americans, married into the Jaramillo family. And they married 11 and 12-year-old girls. And I suspect, I don't know, but my suspicion is that the Jaramillos wanted to socially climb up. So they married their daughters off to the Americans. <laughs> Uh, so I don't think, I sort of disagree with you that there was probably a lot of love and, and caring about it. I think it was, it was mostly political and advantageous. I, I think we'll never know. Um, I, I don't know, the, I don't understand the people around me who are married. And <laughs> so, the people of the past uh, don't tell us everything we would like to know about them. So my sit as is true of the people of the present and right. will be true of the people of the future. So there's much mystery in, and there are marriages that begin under uh, bad circumstances that prosper and there are marriages that begin in the best circumstances. So I guess I'm just gonna say I get more mystified by that question of private lives and emotion, which doesn't mean that we must stay out of it as historians, but we must be extremely humble in our appraisals of that because the people of the past hide from us in terms of what they put in their records. and. Uh, uh, full out diary of uh, I woke up this morning and I've never been angrier in my life than I was with my wife. I mean, never, well, praise God we don't have such diaries, I guess. It's a blessing not to have, yeah. have those. But I, I'm just going to accent the mystery element there. Well, and rich people are the ones who leave records. And so yes. we tend to know more about the, the wealthy families that intermarried with Anglos. It could be that there are kind of working class families, that they're working class Anglo soldiers and so on, who may have intermarried and some of them may have been in Love, and some may have been in hate, and we don't right. know. Yeah, but yeah. we just don't have those records. Not that they're not there, we just knew, need to do a better job of it. But right now, we know about the wealthy people, because again, rich people are the ones that leave right. most of the documents, right? I think it's also important to be very kind of humble regarding people's marriages, and not just assume that they're all, they're all um, arranged to the advantage of the Anglo conquerors, because when you do that, you don't give the Nuevo Mexicanos or the native peoples any agency in this at all. They are simply victims and they don't want to be victims. They want to have agency and they did have agency in their lives. Doesn't mean that some of these marriages weren't, you know, arranged, economic arrangements, but I would guess probably most of them, you know, were, were more than that or became more than that uh, in the long run. So. 
Well, I know we could go on all evening, but this hour has just flown by up here on stage and in the audience, too. Before we close, I'd like to thank the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History and Arizona State University for making our What It Means to Be American series possible and for bringing us here to Taos. Thank you to the Taos Center of the Arts for hosting us in their beautiful space, and also thank all of you for joining us tonight. It's such great to see a full house here for this conversation.